Time for Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator on the contemporary scene. Here's Gene. think we're talking about it's culture of course do that thing oh yeah 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 it's a development here that you should be aware of you know, every everywhere you look you know this uh, guys are striking out for freedom everywhere everywhere in the world even in Cincinnati which is hard to believe but uh, nevertheless in Cincinnati I suppose you heard about uh, Albert Richardson. You hear about him? Oh, he had the hell of a thing here. Albert Richardson was told by a judge in Cincinnati that he could badmouth the apes at the Cincinnati Zoo because it was his constitutional right. Richardson, 41, appeared in court Tuesday on a disorderly conduct charge filed by a security guard at the zoo who charged at the man, and we quote, was using bad language to people and started drinking wine. Monday. I wasn't yelling at the people, Richardson replied. I was yelling at the apes. Criminal court judge Peter Outcault dismissed the charge after Richardson proved to everyone's satisfaction that it was the apes he was yelling at, not the people. The judge said, and I, I said, this is a Solomon-like decision, and uh, it's kind of in keeping with the, uh, you know, the legalistic view of man's place in the universe today. And we're quoting the judge. Uh, Richardson has a constitutional right to talk to apes anytime he wants to, providing he does it during zoo visiting hours and not when other members of the public are around. Next case. Oh, but there goes that damn hum. Hello, hello. I kind of like the idea of him yelling at the apes. Now, it didn't say what he was saying to the apes. And uh, I just wonder whether or not there's going to be, you know, this is a very, very, very oppressed minority, the apes. And uh, you, you notice that uh, at no point was he worried, Judge Outcult, about the uh, rights of the apes. I mean, here he is yelling bad mouth stuff at the apes. And, uh, well, you know, you know what I'm saying here, for crying out loud. I'll tell you this, though. You, that, that zoo, now, they're talking about that zoo. I, I, that isn't the first time that I've heard people bad mouth apes in that particular zoo. Now, that's Cincinnati, right? You ever been to Cincinnati Zoo? It's a great zoo. Well, you know, there are a lot of animals walking around. It's a zoo, and there's trees. But the, <laughs> well, there is. It's a zoo, you know. But the one thing about this zoo is they have, in the middle of it, they have a place where they have uh, they have grand opera. Yeah, they got a, they got an arena there, like a like a uh, saw like an auditorium, open open air auditorium, you know. And uh, they have grand opera. Well, you wouldn't believe it. There was a time in my somewhat uh, 
checkered career when I did the commentary on the zoo opera, you know, the very serious stuff that comes in between the, the acts. Oh, yes, I was very good at it, too, because, uh, oh, yeah, I, I blend into the scenery real good. I, you, you, just, uh, you just tap the shepherd any place, and he'll give you whatever you want, you know. And uh, they tap me in the right place. They say, you get opera commentary, and then I started to say things like Moscone, you know, lasagna, uh, various things like uh, La Traviata, you know, you know all that uh, bourgeois stuff. Uh, I did. I did the zoo opera, and it was all over the country. It was on the network, you know. And they had these great opera singers. I'll, I'll tell you the story. They had the great opera singers like Roberta Peters, and uh, you know the really top top singers. And uh, they came from the Met. And I would get backstage. See, I know them all, and I'd be back there. I'm, I'm the commentator. So every every night when the zoo opera would would begin. Uh, Whatever we would be doing, say uh, Aida, or uh, they did all the you know standard repertoire. In fact, a lot of uh, very exotic operas too. Among them, they did uh, uh, Wojciech, which is a fantastic opera by Schoenberg, or Alvin Berg rather. It was Berg's opera Wojciech, and a uh, fantastic opera. And uh, I, I uh, of course, I'm doing the commentary, and so in between acts, uh, the big roar of applause, and I would say, you've just heard the elegant. Bell oratorio sung by Lucia de Lamamour. And tonight, the uh, elegant first night audience is filing out. And uh, we have here in the green room, well, one night, see, remember, they're in the zoo doing this. Got it? It's being broadcast all over the country. It's being fed to the network. And uh, it was at night. All the zoo opera performances were at night. Wonderful. Uh, if you ever go out to Cincinnati, you really, you really should go to it. It's uh, great. You know, speaking of uh, speaking of, of things, just little little things that happen in town. Uh, uh, a lot of people go into a city, whatever the city is, and they don't they don't really get the flavor of that city. Uh, like take New York here, for example. People people come to this town for two weeks, and I I really feel sorry for them. I mean, they they go through the you know the usual guided tour bit and. Uh, and uh, which is all right, you know. That you kill three hours, and you see, you you know, you see the city physically. But uh, uh, there's a, there's a feel to a city when you live in the city that uh, no tour can ever possibly give you. And Cincinnati is a good case in point. And that if you want to feel Cincinnati, you got to go to the Zoo Opera on a on a nice warm July or August night, and uh, sit out there. And then, of course, everybody's dressed in the summer, and they're really beautiful. It's lovely, and uh, you just just feel it's. It's a it's an indescribable feeling because first of all, if you love opera, and anybody who's ever really seen opera always automatically falls totally ape over it. I, I, opera is 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 like uh, almost like total theater. It is total theater. It it uh, it uh, uh, it's it's a, it's a, it's a whole experience. And if you've only listened to opera, well, that's like saying, well, I listen to the movies a lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's kind of silly. Because uh, because uh, opera is a visual, uh, it's a it's a it's a total experience. Even the audience is part of it. It's a very odd, curious feeling. And some of the great moments in the theater that I've had as an audience have been in the, have been in the opera house, not in the theater very much. But anyway, this night was a great moment. Uh, this uh, <coughs> this very uh, very highly charged tenor. In fact, this tenor, the, the tenor, I will not give you his name, but uh, this tenor uh, was a very uh, emotional type. 
And a very good tenor, by the way, and he's sung many times in the Met. In fact, he's currently with the Met. And uh, he had fantastic range. And uh, he just looked, though, when you got close to this guy, he just looked like he was uh, had a very short fuse. Uh, that, uh, you know, he could pop his cork with the slightest opportunity. So, in fact, about two weeks before that, this same guy had done Carmen. And he was singing in the... And he'd come out on a stage, you know, he had this this costume and his sword rattling and all that stuff. And there was a gigantic lady playing Carmen. And she was about a foot and a half taller than he was. And a very tough lady. And a very famous singer, but a very tough lady. And uh, she, you know, she just... Uh, the, the, when, the, when, the, when she was on stage, that was what the whole show was about. I mean, forget it. Anybody else there. So when they would be singing a duet... You know, there's a lot of duets in the Carmen. You know, he's singing about how he's going to kill himself and, and that she's going to run away with the cigarette girls and all that jazz. And they're singing away. And with that, she would swing around like that and she would hit him. She would knock him, literally knock him back. You know, so, so he would be behind her while they're singing a duet. Well, he and I'm looking right down at this scene. So on the, on the great night in question, he finally had enough of it, see. And there's a scene where he kills her. You, you know, this famous scene. Well, he practically did. In fact, he he, he lunged at her. See, ah! the knife. She, ah! she jumps back. He knocks her flat. See, he caught her off guard, and and he and with that he hurled her off stage. She, she literally flew off, like out down in the apron of the stage. Well, down comes the curtain. See, it's the end of the act, and here she is. She's outside. Well. <laughs> Well, I want to tell you, there's a, he had some exciting moments in the opera, but uh, on this one night, here he is, he's singing a completely different opera now. I think it's a Barber of Seville or something. And they, yeah, that's, in fact, that's what it was. And he's got this, uh, this fake razor, you know, he's shaving the guy. You've probably seen the Barber of Seville, see, and, and the Basso is sitting in the, in the, yes, of course, I assume that you've seen all these things, and, and uh, the Basso is sitting in the chair. And uh, he's all dressed up in his costume, and he's got this white cloth around him. And uh, there's he, he's dancing around, Figaro, 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 and, and with that, suddenly off stage came this curious son. He's singing this aria, and he's out in front there, and he's seeing moaning, he's singing this beautiful. All of a sudden, you hear off stage, oop, 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 oop. And they were doing it in the beat of the music. It was a fantastic moment. Oop, oop. And he'd go, oop, oop. Oop, oop. And he stopped in the middle of his area after about, you know, five minutes of this fantastic counterpoint. He just stopped. And the orchestra continues, you know, sort of piddling out there, squeaking away with their fiddles, and they sort of stop there. <laughs> he's up on a stage, he's looking around. Dead silence. There I am. I'm sitting up in the booth. There, see, well, I have to fill up. I says, uh, there seems to be a uh, slight technical difficulty. Uh, the uh, Barbara of Seville will continue in just a few moments. Uh, uh, the uh, technical difficulty will be corrected. It's on stage. Well, of course, what I wasn't saying is this guy's walking around. He thinks somebody's out in the audience kneeling him. He thinks they're putting them on out there. He thinks that somebody's giving them the business. See, well. The, the 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 conductor who was Fausto Cleva, by the way, very fine conductor. He goes, 
You know, they start out, they start to sing again. Well, that turned them on again instantly. See, we're quiet when he stopped. And he starts saying, They start yelling. It's the seals. Well, he stopped again in the middle of the area, and he starts to bark. He's barking back at the seals. He goes, Oop, oop, oop. And the seals start barking. Well, I just want to tell you, it was it was a, it was a, it was one of the high points in my cultural life. Uh, somehow, opera came alive, and he barked at the seals and w- refused to go on. He says, "I will not continue. I will not continue. I will not continue with the seals after that. What the kind of thing is that you cannot sing opera with the seals barking like that?" And he's up on the stage yelling. I do it pretty well, don't I? Well, at that point, <laughs> well, I'm an actor. You got to, you got to, you got to accept that reality. So at that point, you know, he says, "I will not have to continue. I will not have to go on." And the, you could hear a lot of people laughing backstage, which was the chorus. See, the chorus is always needling the stars in the opera world. Yeah, they always, uh, you always figure that uh, you know, they're there, but for the luck of having a good agent go, I, I could have been out there singing the the main aria from the Barber Seville, but here I am back in the chorus, heading to the, you know, in the wings. And uh, you hear him laughing. He got mad at that. So he runs over. He says, "I went out that sadness. What a kind of thing!" And of course, you hear the whole crowd. That's two thousand people sitting there. This guy's throwing a fit. And then the lions started off stage. Lions. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that zoo uh, is a curious zoo. Now remember, this is the same zoo where this guy just was doing all the yelling at the apes. And I would not, sus- I, I don't know, they don't tell me what the, the guy does for a living. I suspect he may be an opera singer. I mean, uh, because a lot of those opera singers got very mad. And the ducks would start some nights. See, the animals would, t- would take turns. Uh, some nights it was the seals. Some nights it would be, you'd hear the ducks. Quack, 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 And about 50 ducks would all start going. They'd go in like a chorus. Quack, 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 That does not help Aida. No way. I mean, when, you know, when the, when the pharaoh is up there singing away and the, <laughs> and the tomb is being opened and they're being closed or whatever the hell it is they do and the soldiers come marching on stage to the sound of offstage ducks, it just kind of reduces Verdi's whole idea. And so when you, when you, <laughs> I saw, you know, it's funny when you, when you talk about animals and, and zoos, uh, they, they, uh, they, they they tend to see take, partake of the of the atmosphere that they're in. Uh, an animal in a zoo, not, not all of them. Some of them just sulk a great deal. Well, of course, that's true of us. I mean, I know a lot of sulkers. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, speaking of uh, Ferraris and the Italian uh, tenors, we would like to bring up a little uh, cultural note for those of you who are interested in uh, in uh, hello. There goes that hum. There we go. I don't mess around equipment. Years ago, I learned where to hit stuff to make it go, and uh, that's. Uh, we'd like to salute the uh, the Italian mind, which is uh, really interesting. Monte Monte Silvano, Italy. It's a very elegant town, by the way. Newspaper seller Gravino Agostini. Uh, wait a minute, Gravino Agostinoni has invented what he claims is the world's first completely automatic spaghetti machine. Agostinoni has already built a prototype. An automatic spaghetti machine. Listen to this. He pours flour and water in one end, and 20 minutes later, the machine produces 40 portions of cooked spaghetti served on paper plates with containers for sauce and Parmesan cheese 
and a conveyor belt to carry the plates, the machine produces a ready-to-eat helping of Italy's favorite food, untouched by human hands. It's marching. The slob world is marching. It's hitting Italy now. It's got an automatic machine. By the way, uh, speaking of... Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't finish the story, did I? What story didn't I finish? <laughs> about the outdoor restaurant. Didn't I mention when I was doing the, the, the thing there? I was going to tell you about what terrible thing happened to me one time in an outdoor restaurant. Well, you know you know outdoor restaurants. You've been in them, you know, with the little places with the... Uh, usually here in, in uh, New York now. Do you know what happens, for example, down on Sunday afternoon? Jerry, you, you live in the village. Sunday afternoon, you know where you... You know your father's mustache down there? Where they have all that uh, corny Dixieland stuff all during the week. Well, you know, Sunday, they're closed. They don't have the ordinary stuff there, at least during the day. Well, at, at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, now this is a real New York thing. At 3 o'clock, or therefore, is around that time of the day, uh, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, a lot of New York people, just New York types from the village, all sort of drift into this joint. And some of the most fantastic sounds they have, well, all I can say is you've got to get on and hear it, that's all. And it's New York all the way. There's no way a tourist could ever, you know, make that scene. It's a separate, completely, it's a total New York experience. Now, you know where that is, don't you, Jerry? It's uh, 7th Avenue and 10th, isn't it? Yeah, 7th and 10th. Yeah. It is, it is not the beer and pretzel scene that they have, you know, usually during the week. Totally different scene. All right. Now, now that's what I mean about you. You have to that there are certain things that, that give you the taste of a city that you cannot get through uh, the guidebook. No guidebook has this stuff because a lot of the stuff comes and goes and disappears. It'll be there for a moment. A couple of weeks later, it quietly disappears. And uh, in fact, you know, uh, the outdoor cafe scene is now very big here in New York in a lot of ways. Uh, and uh, of course, that that can be very exciting, especially when the when the uh, when the air pollution quality is very big, you know. And uh, yeah, <laughs> in fact, uh, when you when you for for you know you've been eating this hamburger, you think it's made out of onion rolls, and uh, you know you're eating away there, and then suddenly you discover it's not, it's not an onion roll at all. It's just a lot of soot all over the top of it, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I I remember one day I was sitting sitting in a in an outdoor cafe with a friend of mine. From the voice, the village voice, we're sitting there talking away. They say we got we got talking. See, and uh, they served the stuff, and then we had gazpacho, right? You know what is gazpacho? Well, you know this cold soup. See, and uh, they served this gazpacho. So we're sitting here talking. Well, we we were really deeply involved. See, and the waitress came over. She put the put the gazpacho down in front of us, and uh, we were talking away. And we we've been talking about fifteen minutes. We didn't even touch the soup yet. See, after all, it's cold soup, you know. So we talking away. Funny, Ed looks down the soup. He says, "What? What the hell's in this soup?" He said, "I don't want no pepper in a soup like this." But I looked at my soup. I says, "That don't look like pepper, Ed." I went about to write. <laughs> well, it was Jersey crud. You know, it'd been just drifting down. We had a fine coating of Jersey crud all over the soup. You got to eat very fast. Now that's part of the, the the New York Sea. You get used to that. So anyway, one night in a restaurant, which I will not name, I, I went. Uh, See, a lot of the outdoor places in, in New York restaurants are in the back of the restaurant. They're not out in the front. They're in the back, you know, the backyard type thing. And 
<laughs> and I, I, it was a very elegant date. See, and, and I go to this place and I'll dress in a very quite a quite a, a very expensive joint, you know. And uh, out in the back, they had this garden. So everybody sits down. We're sitting there, and they bring the steaks and stuff, and and uh, it's uh, candle lit, the whole jazz, and it's uh, it's nice and warm in summertime. It's really kind of great to be outdoors and in in the in the yard, uh, out in the back of the restaurant, the outdoor. And all of a sudden, there's a wild scene. All of a sudden, something just lands in the middle of all of us. Just pow! It goes like that. So it bounces all over. The, somebody's throwing a beer can. And the beer can flies down and lands on the, uh, the table. See, I look up, <laughs> and all around us were these were these dark apartments. See, you could see the, the tower up above the restaurant, and and they were heckling the people who were down here eating in the you know in the in the classy joint. And they keep throwing stuff down. They keep throwing the pop bottles. You know, the Yoo-Hoo can bounces down among us. And a guy opens the door up the window. You hear, Hey, I say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What are you throwing at the hole? You call it a girl. They're yelling at us. And so we're all sitting there, you know, eating the steak. And uh, it's just uh, it's just like everything else in New York. You know, you get used to all kinds of uh, graffiti. Uh, and uh, so, you know, and the thing that I, that I was really impressed by was the aplomb with which my fellow New Yorkers carried it off. I mean, we continued to pretend like we were having an elegant evening. And, uh, yes, and they were all sitting there eating, uh, you know, eating the steaks and, and drinking the drugstore wine and uh, <laughs> eating the rubber the rubber uh, baking powder biscuits that were being served. And, uh, you know, at the $24 a head, and all the while... The, the the crowd up 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 in the building all around us are throwing down the milk bottles and stuff and yelling, <laughs> and that isn't all they threw. Some of the things they threw were kind of obscene. I mean, if you if you if you look at it that way, obscenity. See, but uh, so you know uh, you have to take life the way it is. <laughs> but I'll tell you, you know, speaking of uh, you know speaking of, of of restaurants, I'll tell you, uh, you know, some nights uh, have, you, have you ever had the fear. Uh, it's a deep-seated fear. People are very nervous about food. Uh, in fact, some people, uh, you know, food can have, because uh, it's a basic function of, of the animal. Food, sex, sleep, reproduction, these are all basic things see, that, that, that we share with all the other animals. And uh, if, you, if you want to see an animal get up tight, it's when you mess around with his food, right? I mean, man, I'll tell you, a bear will just rip your ear right off, you know, if you, if you grab all of his bone or something, see? And I've seen little tiny dogs turn into, you know, turn into lions if you mess around with their alpo. Well, man is like that, too. I mean, up to a certain point, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's very basic. And so we have a lot of uh, fears that, uh, that go along with food, just like... And now, it, it, what, what it needs, of course, is a Dr. Rubin to write a bad book about it. You know, all the stuff you wanted to ask about hamburgers but was afraid to ask, you know, that kind of thing. Well... These these little <laughs> you like the title of that book, huh? Well, these these little fears are, are always playing havoc with us. Now, for example, now I'll, you, you're going to say, "What the hell, Shepard, talking about?" I'll tell you what I'm talking about. What if tonight you're sitting down, you know, and uh, somebody says, "How'd you like a bowl of vegetable soup?" And you say, "Oh, great! Well, yeah, it smells good." They give you the vegetable soup, and you start shoveling it in. And you're poking away, and all of a sudden you see something floating down there. It turns out to be a dead mouse in your vegetable soup, right? You don't like that thought, huh? Okay, well, all right. Now you're agreeing with me. We have basic fears. Now why? That may be a very hygienic dead mouse. 
probably healthier than you. Well, he's dead, but uh, after all, a lot of people are too. They just don't know it yet. You know, they're still walking around. But uh, nevertheless, one night, I won't even tell you where this happened. Well, I'll tell you where it happened. Are you curious? All right. It happened to me in Haifa. Haifa. You know, where is it? Haifa, right? Haifa. Now, this is pretty exotic right from the start. And uh, this this friend of mine says to me, he says, uh, you, he says you, wish to, uh, you wish to have a dinner tonight in a very interesting restaurant? And I says, uh, mm, yes, I think so. I think so. See, when I'm in uh, Europe or various other exotic places, I adopt uh, uh, my, my strange middle Europa accent. It's uh, totally undefinable. I says, yes, I think so. And I says, ah, oh, yeah, you you like uh, you like the Arab food? Mm-hmm. Interesting. You see, so you can see how I carry out my conversation. So I figure I got you know I'm on top of it. So we go to the Arab quarter. No, you just don't go to the Arab quarter. At least in that city, uh, you just don't get the cab and hail the cab. You know, say, hey, take me to the Arab quarter. No, you drive. We drive this car to the outskirts of it. We start walking in through this these little narrow streets. And uh, I, I immediately realized I was in for a, an exotic evening, uh, really exotic, because right in the middle of the road, in front of the restaurant, there was a gigantic pig. I mean a pig. I mean a big pig. I mean a pig. I mean, really. How long has it been since you've been uh, next to a really full-grown pig? Pretty long, right? Well, you tend to forget how big they are. As a matter of fact, a full-grown pig, I mean a real piggy pig, tends to get almost the size of a small rhinoceros. They are big, man. And so here's this quite big slob of a pig laying there in the street. Gigantic pig. And so we both walk around. And they were all dressed up. See, everybody's going into this restaurant. And they're all elegantly dressed. It is nightlife in Haifa. And so I get in the line, you know, the all the rest of the people. And we walk into this uh, Arabic restaurant. And uh, everybody's sitting around little, little tiny tables. And they have this curious uh, Arabic decor. Everyone, you know, it's uh, kind of red, the lacquer, and the, uh, the odd the Arabic figures all over the place. And uh, the waiter comes over, and he speaks a few short words of Arabic to my friend. And my friend says, uh, you, should, uh, you, you wish to have the specialty as a house. I said, hmm, interesting. What is it? He says, oh, uh, uh, is, uh, is uh, is uh, how you say uh, in in uh, in uh, in English uh, is a uh, is a ragu ragu is a ragu. I saw oh, ragu. May we, may we? Yes, uh, s'il vous plaît, indeed, uh, Ragu it shall be. And he says to the waiter, "Ah, too ragu, yes, indeed." And so the waiter hurries off, and I figure ragu, hell, you know, I can handle that. Yeah, that the ragu is just like stew, you know. Says so no, no problem. Well, now I'll tell you one thing. When you're in, in a waiter, when you when you're when you're the guest of a, of a, you know the, the Arabic peoples, uh, you are expected to partake of the food. This is a very basic rule of uh, of ordinary civility. Well, the waiter comes and with a great flourish. He produces these two bowls of the ragu, and uh, each bowl has uh, on the top of it has a little silver top you know, with a knob on it. They're covered They're like a tureen. See, it says ah the ragu. And he puts it down in the middle of the table and gives us the two bowls, and he starts ladling it out. He ladles it out into his bowl, and he ladles it out into my bowl. Well, we are talking, you know, like two uh, sophisticated uh, continental gentlemen. 
Uh, we are talking about, uh, you know, uh, pleasantries. Uh, oh, it's, it's a race this year at Monte Carlo proves possibly to be interesting. I believe that Jackie Stewart uh, driving the BRM. Uh, he uh, is a formidable, formidable. Uh, may we? Well, I, I, I'm talking away, then I take my spoon and I start stirring his stuff. And I take a sip of it, it's hotter than hell. Oh, I mean, it's like it's melted red pepper, see? Well, I, my eyes water. I continue to speak. And then he stops. He says, how do you like the ragout? And I says, oh, very good, Jacques. Excellent. It's a little hot, but it's excellent. I have always enjoyed this sort of food. And for the first time, I look down in the bowl for the first time. I cannot believe what I am seeing. There in the bowl, looking up at me, are floating two gigantic eyeballs. I look, I says, oh, this is uh, interesting. <laughs> this is very interesting. Well, at this point, my, my friend across the table, he takes one of the eyeballs that is in his bowl, and he just pops it in his mouth, and whoop, down it goes. He says, oh, I thought you would enjoy this. He says, oh, of course, he's the finest young sheep for eyeballs. They are the Arabic specialty of the house. You'll find a très delicioso. Well, <laughs> I knew immediately, of course, that I was not at McDonald's. That Ronald McDonald did not serve me anything like this, you know, a little piccolilly on the side. So, uh, bravely, and that's one thing you've got to say about Shepard. You will say this many times. You've noticed this, Jerry. Shepard, if nothing else you can say about him, he hangs in, right? He hangs in. I mean, I hang in. So, what, down with the whole ball. Eyeballs and all. Well, this impressed my friend. And then, of course, he says to me after the eyeballs, he says, uh, you really do love the fine Arabic food, I can see that. Now let us have something really unusual. <laughs> At which point he calls to the waiter and they speak in Arabic quickly and the waiter scurries off. Well, due to the fact that there are women and children listening tonight, and uh, there are others of squeamish nature, I will not describe the following entree. But let's put it this way, it was one of the most unforgettable meals that I have ever had. In fact, some nights at 3 in the morning I wake up and I just see it floating around in the ceiling there, looking down at me, with the claws hanging. Oh, play, elegant. You've been listening to Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator on the contemporary scene.